Hi, my name's Steve, and I'm here to tell you all about the DC Comics News Podcast. Every week, my friends and I sit down and discuss everything DC. Movies, TV and streaming, comic books, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Whatever the case, you can find the DC Comics News Podcast on every podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere else you find podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mike Burton of Star Wars Comics and Canon and Genuine Chit Chat, and I'm here to talk to you guys about a new monthly show that's coming out on Comics in Motion very soon. Now the show is going to be called the Comics in Motion Book Club, and it's specifically going to be tackling one-shots, mini-series, or small volumes of ongoing runs of comics. The idea behind it is a host, as well as a handful of guests, are going to sit down like an old-school book club and talk about the comic, the narrative, their thoughts on it, the art style, and just generally all aspects of the comic in question. We would also love to hear from you guys on the show, so please make sure you send in your thoughts, your questions, or anything you'd like us to say on air, and you can contact us either on social media at comicsinmotionp, or you can email us at comicsinmotionpodcast at gmail.com. We're also going to have a rolling host, so it's going to be a different person each month, just so there's a nice big variety of the kind of comics that we tackle, and obviously the guests are going to change as well, so every month is going to be something different. I'm going to be the host of the first episode, and unsurprisingly, we are tackling a Star Wars comic. It's going to be the first volume of Darth Vader, Dark Lord of the Sith. It is the 2017 Darth Vader run, written by Charles Saul. We're going to be tackling issues 1-6 to six for the Chosen One arc, but the trade paperback collection is called The Imperial Machine. You can find this on Marvel Unlimited, and you can also find it on Hoopla, as well as you can buy it on Comixology and all the usual places that you find your comics. So with that all said guys, the countdown begins. Happy reading, and we look forward to hearing from you. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Indie Comic Spotlight, the show where we spend time looking at an ongoing series or graphic novel from a company other than the big two. The hope here is that we can do a deep dive on an indie comic you may have missed, or give you a chance to talk about one of your favorites with us on social media afterwards. I'm your host, Tony Farina of DC Comics News and Fantastic Universes. I've been reading comics since I was 12, and while I love a good superhero battle, I gravitate towards indie comics and standalone graphic novels because they give artists a chance to connect with readers in different ways and tell stories they may not have been able to tell with traditional comics or traditional novels. I hope that you enjoyed the show. All right. Well, everybody, months ago, at the end of uh, the last shittiest worst year in the world, um, I had two gentlemen on to make the year not shitty, uh, um, and we talked about the first half, volumes one through six of Garth Ennis's The Boys from Dynamite Entertainment. And we promised we would come back and we would finish. And so now here we are, halfway through 2021, ready to put a nail in the coffin of The Boys. 
and back to join me from that episode, back for their multiple, I mean, both of them have been on multiple times. So these are voices you know, plus Brad Flicky, co-host of the DCN podcast. So if you're if you're listening, if you're if you're not subscribed to that, you should because they they're giving that shit away for free. They're like, here's stuff, here's stuff you didn't know, plus interviews. They're like, oh, here we're gonna interview Stuart Orlando. You want to listen to that? That's also free. That's there you go. So Brad, welcome back to Andy Comics Spotlight. Thank hey Brad. Thank you. Hey, hey, glad to be back. Honored to be here. I'm excited that you're here because I feel like this is, well, I like the boys and I think Dave, this is Dave's first run through. You are, I feel like the guru. So you are, our, you're our Sherpa as we guide our way through the sticky waters of, of this second half. And back the podfather himself, everybody's favorite Liverpoolian, Dave Horrocks. Dave, how are you? Um, excellent, Tony. Cheers for having us again. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to getting stuck into this uh, with yourself and Brad. Yeah, me too. And I feel like I can't wait for people to just stop listening right there when I say you're everybody's favorite Liverpudlian. And they're like, I'm done listening now. That's not true. But you're my favorite like Liverpudlian. John Lennon and, you know, Ringo, whatever. Arnie, Ringo. Like, they yeah, they yeah, might have something fun. to say about that, but, you know, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. I thought Max's show for a minute. <laughs> no, I know. I, listen, I'm not even going to try to do an intro like Max, that guy. That's Those are special. world-class intros, aren't they? He is. I don't know how he doesn't work for the WWE. I don't know what they're thinking about. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. Should for be sure. the uh, announcer, shouldn't he? Yeah. So we're back to uh, bury the boys, as it were. Um, now, I'm just going to say, and this I didn't preface this, I didn't tell Brad and Dave this, but we're not going to talk about Dear Becky because I did not. I've never read Dear Becky. Um, I own it, but I haven't read it. So we're going to end with episode issue 73. So I don't know if you guys were had notes about Dear Becky. Sorry, I should have prefaced that. Have you were you prepared to talk about that? You know, I I have not uh, finished it. Um, I I've read like the first three issues. So I'm kind of glad that uh, okay. we, I thought that we'd leave that out of the conversation, <laughs> too. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> Dave, are you good? Or did you read that? You're like, damn it. I had we're, an hour just for Dear Becky. We're, we're all good because okay. uh, up until a few seconds ago, I didn't know Dear Becky was a thing. Oh, and I've just I've just scrolled down to the bottom. I'm like, oh, can I finish at, at the is it 72 or 73? I finished at, at that. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, I'm done. Uh, I, now I'm going to have to dig through my PDFs and go, where's yeah, this they're thing there. then? Yeah, so. they're there. We did get them through the, through the um, uh, Humble, Humble Bundle. Bundle. They did deliver yep. those. Yeah, Dear Becky is years later, and um, the two, two of this, the two surviving characters, which we'll get to, and we're going to spoil the shit out of this, but I won't tell that now, um, find letters um, and things uh, revolving around Becky Butcher. So mm -hmm. the title gives that away, but we aren't going to, we're not going to do that. So we're going to just focus on this. So where we left off um, at the end of our last show, the boys were in a bit of disarray. Hero Gasm had come and gone. Ha -ha. Um, and Butcher had understood that he finally learned the truth about Huey and Annie and uh, it put he and uh, Mother's Milk at odds. And so that is kind of where we pick up in this, this next part, volume six, uh, or volume seven through 12, where um, Huey's out of the loop, Mother's Milk and Butcher are fighting, um, Frenchie and the female are just, you know, being their normal crazy selves. My favorite thing that, and I believe that's in this run, is Frenchie gives her a bunch of 2000 AD comics. That's in this 
Yeah, I, I'm not. Or sure. is that in the first part? I, he definitely does that, but which I, I love. Whether whenever it was, it's just one of my favorite yeah. moments. He's like, this will this will calm her down. The most scathing satire, violence-filled comics of all time. That will make the female <laughs> understand the human condition. So, so that's where we pick up. So the first major story arc of this is um, Huey goes out to the middle of nowhere to infiltrate Super Duper which is a group of people who genuinely just want to be like do-gooders. Um, and that's kind of where we pick up. So so what do you make, Brad? What do you make of Super Duper? Do you feel like this was Ennis's take? Because this is like the anti-G-Men. Like the G-Men were these depraved, crazy sociopaths. The Super Duper are like, if they were your local superhero team, it feels like you'd be happy to have them. What do you make of them? Uh, they seem... Uh, their hearts in the right place, uh, you know, they're, but they're just kids. Um, and they are a bit ridiculous. Like the, the girl who can phase, but her powers don't work right. So she ends <laughs> she up slamming into, into walls and breaking <laughs> her nose. And I mean, that's, that's a perfect uh, kind of Ennis way of dealing with superheroes, I think. And uh, yeah, in, in a way I almost found them similar to, kind of um, the legion of superheroes because they're in a way wide-eyed and kind of innocent. I think a lot of the teams that we've dealt with in this book before this kind of had that definitely a sinister tinge. So this was kind of like a, a, a different perspective on, on superheroes in this world. Yeah, I, I like that. You know, that's just so funny. Dave, what did... I never have liked the Legion of Superheroes, and now I know why. Thank you, Brad Flicky. What did <laughs> What did you make of the Legion of Superheroes, Dave? Does that Does that ring true for you? Do you know much about them? No, I, I'm trying to dig through my memory now. The Legion of Superheroes, R refresh me. I, I'm I'm thinking of the challenges of the unknown for some reason. I, there are a future that what I don't remember the century, but like Brainiac Five, the Green Brainiac is in it, and there's a Superboy. And they're just this like it's it's this utopia, but they're still superheroes. There's still a need for superheroes, as it were. But they're yeah. all like they're they're all bleeding hearts a little. And and they're right. young, and they have kind of ridiculous names and powers like Matter Eater Lad. And, Matter uh, Eater Lad. Jimmy yeah, Olsen, I mean, by like, the way, time travels and becomes part of this group. That's yeah. Oh, at word. one point. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I, I wasn't. That's interesting that. So, no, I, I thought that might rekindle some dormant memory, but I, I don't think I've come across them before. I think it's totally fair. I, totally fair. I wasn't sure. It, it's hard for me to not see the X-Men in almost every team here because with a lot of the kind of side stories, things like District X, where they didn't really play with the, the main X-Men. They, they dealt with mutants who were in mutant town and they had these powers that, that they didn't ask for and they weren't the cool powers. They weren't the healing powers or the shoot lasers out of your eyes kind of powers. They, they, they were, you know, ridiculous skin conditions and, and things like this and giving off pheromones. Uh, and so I, I wondered if it was something about that, but I wasn't too sure if it was, they, they kind of played for laughs as well. And I, I felt it was a, it was a little bit cynical because they, they were the only good people pretty much in the whole damn book, <laughs> but they were played off like they were simple and had 
learning difficulties kind of thing. And, and so I, I, I didn't really know what to make of it. I think what I'd say, though, I mean, uh, when we put this date in the diary, I was like, right, okay, I hadn't read. I just sort of dropped it at Herogasm. We'd had our discussion, and then, you know, you're reading other stuff. When I knew I had to read all of the rest of it, I couldn't stop. So it's actually, you know, it's a good few weeks ago now since since I actually finished it. And I just couldn't wait to get to the next book. So it's all the way through to the end. I think it was uh, a lot of these things were kind of filler and a bit of backstory to give us extra context about these different characters and where they're coming from and, you know, what their origins were. But but it was all so riveting. Um, so, so I did just all of it for me was a was a page turner. But, yeah, I think this was the this was the team that you think, you know, this has Huey really questioning you know what what are we doing are we really on the side of the righteous you know uh as they said in uh, it wasn't peep show it was the guys who did peep show uh the comedy and they're dressed up in ss uniforms and then one suddenly questions and looks at the other and says are we the baddies <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other guy's like no no we're, we're not the baddies you know and he says but we have skulls on our caps. <laughs> so it, it was kind of like that. I think it. the point of this whole section is is really to get Huey questioning, like, really, what what are we doing good here? Because this, this group is not particularly, they're not out to hurt anyone. But then you've also got the, um, uh, the, the interesting dynamic with Vort as well, you know, and they, the way they mix and match the different teams and they bring in this, this other guy whose name escapes me right now. Now chemical. Is that, that, yeah, they, that's the one. And he's like, he doesn't fit into the team and he is a nasty, nasty piece of work. Um, so yeah, I don't know if he was just brought in for a bit of conflict, but yeah, I, I enjoyed this whole, this whole story arc. Yeah, I think it. I think what it does. I agree that it's trying to show, from my perspective, is it's trying to. This is the moment. Like for for whatever forty issues, Huey has just taken shit, and he just takes it and takes it. And this is the moment when I mean, because you see it a little bit in G Men, but this is the moment when Huey is like, and he isn't. He hasn't hit his lowest. He hits that coming up here, but um, this is that moment when you're like, oh, Huey. This is my thought, and I'm curious what you guys think, Brad, because you were like, because you brought up Legion of Superheroes, so now that you brought that up, so now I can't think of that. This is like the moment when Jimmy Olsen joins the Legion of Superheroes. Like, is this the moment when Huey realizes, like, in a different world, if he had gotten the compound B a different way, he'd be in Superhero? Yeah, I think I think that this, this is a bit of growth for Huey actually, um, because he he was that wide-eyed innocent at the be beginning of the story. And despite, you know, the, the tragedy that happened with losing Robin, but he was also kind of corrupted by his involvement with the boys. So had things turned out a little different, maybe he would be more like the members of Super Duper. And, it, and I think that in a way, this 
it was kind of good to break up the, the these two the story into these two podcasts because I think at a certain point this is a moment in the story where it almost goes from Huey's story to Billy the Butcher's story because Huey has reached this level where okay now he's kind of crossed that line but so we've, we've kind of come to that conclusion with Huey and now we're seeing kind of as we kind of shift focus almost to Billy that it's it's um the nature of that corruption that corrupted Huey and you know just how deep it goes that's kind of like the themes I think of the second half of of the whole series oh I totally agree I agree I think and I think that's an interesting word corruption because then the second the next series is about um, this Christian conversion convention bullshit thing, where of course, a typical Garth Ennis fashion, the leader of this is a pedophile. And so he's, which is, I mean, of course that's what he'd say. He's like, oh, the head of this weird Christian culty thing is a pedophile. So, you know, he's just, Garth Ennis is not subtle. His subtlety is not his, uh, <laughs> is in his nature in any way, shape or form. But again, the corruption there. And so it's this idea that they, even the way they force Annie and then Homelander shows up and, and you know, um, you know, preaches literally to all these people. So what did you make of that, you guys, Dave? Um, what do you think? We'll start with you on this one. What did you make of that? And I don't know. I'm not trying to turn it into our good friend Mike's podcast where we shit on religion for an hour, which I'm happy to do because Mike and I have actually done that before we covered uh, Second Coming. But that's not what this is for. Hey, Mike, we're not here to shit on religion, but we can. But I feel like Garth Ennis definitely is. So how do, I don't know what your personal religious affiliations are, Dave. So when you got to that section where you're like, hey, hey, or where you're like, hey, yeah, no, that's it. Oh, right. Well, I mean, just to baseline where I'm going to come from or sure. give context to that. So I, I would I describe myself as agnostic. So I think uh, for a period of time, uh, and I don't don't know if you know this about me. So so my degree was astrophysics. So I, I going into that, I was very our oh, science can explain everything, you know, or, or we just haven't found a way to uh, to describe things. So magic and things like that, it's all just it's happening for a reason. And and you could create an experiment if you knew what the laws were, you could create that. And, uh, and explain it and then you sort of get through that and you realize you know concepts like the big bang you just take that as as granted and then it's like okay but what happened before that <laughs> and and things like that and and you look at the the chemical composition of the universe and things like that and it's highly improbable uh for it to sustain life you know if you look at all these kind of chemical structures and what have you so 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 actually through educating myself on the science that left me that pushed me to a place where i was more open to the idea of okay well this seems like you know there there was something at work here you know there was some intervention of some sort and i i don't believe you know if there is such a thing as a god uh, i don't think he's got my best interests at heart you know in the same way that in my garden i don't i don't know what each worm's up to each day you know <laughs> things like that so so i open to the idea of a creator and what have you but but i think the fundamental problem and and it's just me the fundamental problem with religion is it comes from people 
and when you have people and you have huge organizations and money's involved and you know gathering money from people and keeping these expensive buildings and artifacts and everything going you create uh, the need to make more money and so th the whole institution invites corruption that's 100% what it does. And actually, uh, sort of unrelated, but you you might have seen that we've, well, actually, it's been quite topical on our Discord, hasn't it? So we've just released uh, the, our Superman 4 review today. I'm speaking from the future, so this is probably a, a little while ago now, but we just released it. And I, I'd, I hadn't watched this for probably a few decades. Uh, probably haven't watched it since the 80s. Um, and uh, at the end, when obviously Superman saves the day, you know, brings Lex Luthor to justice and whatever, and he brings his, his nephew. But instead of taking his nephew to uh, the police or whatever, he drops him off at a boys' school, <laughs> drops him off with this priest. And I'm like, oh, you, there's a bit of Homelander in you, isn't there? <laughs> 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 yes. <laughs> And I guess that's the, you know, in the 80s, that was that was a safe pair of hands dropping off with the priest, wasn't it? But dropping a young boy off with a priest now, maybe we don't look as, as fondly on that. So, yeah, I think I think uh, personally, I think religion is fair game to be uh, openly uh, criticized and mocked, quite honestly. I absolutely do not uh, begrudge anyone who, if that's their belief and what have you, but just question a few things because, like I say, it's people at the heart of it and they don't all have your best intentions at heart. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm with Garth on this one. Fair enough. Brad, as we'll turn no. this into the religion section of <laughs> not brought to you by communion wafers. <laughs> you know, you, you, you know, you nailed it when you said, uh, at the heart, it's people. And I think it's important to make uh, a distinction both in general and when it comes to the work of Garth Ennis, um, the distinction between God and religion, because religion is at heart a human construct that is by nature fallible. And it's just like fire or water, something that can be used for good, something that can be used for bad. And, uh, you know, from, from the perspective of, of being a Garth Ennis fan, I, I, this kind of fell flat to me because if I wanted to deconstruct and really get into to Garth Ennis's brain about what he thinks about religion, of course, I would go back to preacher. So in a way, this section, I feel, was kind of something that I've heard before coming from him. But um, I, I do think that, that that human side of religion is definitely, definitely fair game and something that does need to be talked about and uh, satirized, if you will, to, you know, to come to something true and, and deep. Yeah, and I think, and I think what you, I think the important thing here, because you use the word corruption, and we're gonna now that you've used that, Brad and Dave said it, I'm gonna keep saying it. We're just gonna keep saying it because I think you're right. I think the second half of this, this story, like you said, Brad, the first half is like we're all Huey. We're all seeing this through Huey's eyes. Huey is our avatar. And the second half, we're all now we know all the dirty, yucky stuff, everything Huey's been through, and so now we know things. We're experienced, and so. 
like you said, now we get to understand, you know, the backstory and see how dirty and seedy it is and that the boys aren't guilt-free. There's corruption there too. But you're right, there is, because in this world, this is the thing that I always get. And I think the believe section to me is when it's the, the hardest hit uh, for me is in the believe section, this family wins a car. They're like true believers. So they're like Christians who, who are there. And, you know, listen, I'm sorry, when somebody's standing on a stage saying the only way is if you're a Christian, if you're a Muslim or a Hindu or you're going to hell, I'm like, eh, okay. But the people who win this are genuinely thinking like they believe in God and they just won this car because of their belief in God. It's like a gift from God. And then Homelander, spoilers, everybody, drops them from the sky and they die. There is no, there's a zero percent chance this family of true believers dies. Because Homelander is a giant dick. Yeah, and, I, and I'm curious in your opinion, to me, as far as hitting the, you know, talking about the TV show for just a second, yeah. that moment when he drops the car, to me, that felt like one of the biggest moments in the series where it felt like the Homelander from the TV show. And I'm, and I'm, I'm curious if, if either of you felt that same way. I, I would say so. Yeah. I, I think the TV show builds up Homelander a bit more than he, he even plays in the books. I think, Yeah. especially in the mm-hmm. first half, you know, he's, he's there and he's obviously nefarious, not, not a very nice person, but because you're off doing all these kind of side missions as well, you know, going to Russia and, and things like this, Homelander isn't, front and center uh, and i think in the tv show you know the probably his f- first real holy shit moment was was the plane wasn't it he yeah. knew he wasn't a very nice person before that but it at that point you know the way he just switches you know from that kind of smiling you know I, i'm a superhero i'm you know christopher reeve superman kind of thing then he knows that there's no way to save them and so he just completely switches it off and you see the real person there. That That is the holy shit moment. But in this book, I completely agree. This this had the same impact. You know, these poor people, like I say, I, religion's not for me. I think, you know, uh, I've said before, I think fundamentally there's, there's just issues with large organizations with people there. Uh, and that's companies, religion, it's anything. But these people were there for the right reasons, you know, and they're they're feeling on top of the world. They think this is fantastic. And, you know, uh, Homelander, you know, basically drops them from the sky, like you say, for, you know, no particular good reason, really, just because he's an arsehole. Yeah, because he can't. <laughs> well, and I think yeah. it's so I agree with you, Brad. I agree. That's the moment. I feel like as the film, as the showrunners were making it, this is the moment when they were reading it, they're like, oh, this is the guy we need to be our villain. And I think, you know, in season two, when they have Stormfront there to kind of out Homelander, Homelander. And I, we talked about this last time that it was smart that they gender swapped Stormfront for the Mm -hmm. show. I think that worked really well. That actress was amazing. I thought that Mm -hmm. was great. But I definitely think I'm with you, Brad. They saw this moment and they're like, that's the bad. We need this guy. We need an actor who can do this can go from, because, and I think Star does this job in the show too, because Homelander, it's like three pages. He's on the ground. He gives the family the car. He's in front of thousands of people. He's live streaming. Everything is great. And three panels later, for no reason, he's just dropped them because he is the worst. And so, yeah, I think they're like, oh, we need that. And um, 
And that is definitely the essence they've captured in the show. Yeah, yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, yeah. nailed it. Well, I do want to say too, though, in this moment though, so this is, and again, Dave, you just said it. So here we've got this, this uh, Christian convention, like, you know, Capes for Christ is what it's called, right? Capes for, Capes uh, for Christ, which is yeah. of course what it would be called. And then of course, and, and the, the, um, the parallels with Vought American here, this is that moment when you realize too, and I think because the one right before, this is going to be my, my connection and you guys can tell me that I'm, I'm sniffing, but so the, the one before was super duper, you see what's really going on with the boys. Cause while Huey's off wherever they are, middle of middle America with super duper, MM is, is, you know, taking down the legend and trying or talking to the legend, trying to figure stuff out. And we see that at all three levels, Vaught Americans, this keeps for Christ, no matter what, the, even the boys, there's corruption. Nothing is ever what it seems. And this is the moment I think when you have to realize because when we get to the end, we're going to spoil the end for everybody. We're going to spoil how this series ends. But here we are, 30 episodes, issues from the ending. I think this is the moment in this second read-through is when I realized, holy shit, this is when they telegraphed it all, how, how it was going to end, that nothing was what it seems. And they kind of do like a flashback at the end of all the different things throughout the series of everybody telling Huey exactly what was going to happen. But it was, and I had forgotten that because, you know, I was reading it myself for this one. So what do you make of that? Do you think... This is that turning point. These two stories, the believe and the super duper are when you're supposed to understand that everything is fucked. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, like I said, I think that it was a great way to divide the series into these two podcasts. That was a great moment because that's where everything switches. And I, I would almost think that at one particular moment and this was uh i I believe right before the super duper uh storyline is is when billy finds out that huey is dating starlight that that is a moment that kind of flips some switches as far as what happens later in the series like there was for whatever reason that is that is a moment so i think that yeah i think that this is, is that absolute moment where things start to come more into focus on how things are going to end. Yeah. What do you think, Dave? Was this, do you think this is just that where we always, we throw the word genius around, but is this like where you're like, Oh, Ennis, you magnificent bastard. How you set us up. Um, I would love to say that I saw all that coming. Um, and this is the moment, but to be honest, I, I didn't really see that. I think I would say I wondered where Billy Butcher was and and I you know I'm wondering how this is all going to wrap up and I, I I didn't know the twist was going to end up where it did but it was just he always seemed to have his own agenda and I agree actually the first half that we covered before a lot of it seems to drive the plot forward and you, you, you're world building and you're getting introduced to all these teams and you, you understand how this world currently works and how, you know, through the legend talks, how it got to here. Whereas at the halfway point, it does seem to fatten out the story a little bit, you know, with, with different backstories and what have you. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of mistrust isn't there so with like mother's milk and uh and billy and and so yeah it it was not all gonna go well and and of course the 
I can't remember which uh, which set of stories it was in now, but but the lady who gets promoted in Vault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I, I that can't... happens right at the end of Herogasm. So that is also that turning point when right. that is that's being set up there too. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if you've seen the Simpsons episode. Uh, there's there's a I can't remember even what what the story was, but I just remember uh, Mr. Burns is talking to uh, Smithers and he's saying, what I need is a patsy. And Homer Simpson goes, hello. hello. And he says, no, <laughs> I need a patsy. Hello. <laughs> <You know? laughs> as soon as she got promoted and the guy was saying, oh, I've had my eye on you. I was like, yep, you are the patsy. <laughs> so <laughs> that one in particular, I do think that was massively telegraphed the way she was clearly getting set up and she thinks she's on top of the world she's been promoted and stuff and it was like yeah you're gonna take the fall for all of this <laughs> yeah and they nine years there's even and again it's there that's and i i'm with you dave i don't the first time through i didn't know how it was gonna end but i for me it was just like uh now that i'm reading a second time through and i know what i'm looking for so i'm like oh you bastard you told me this yeah. is where you yeah Exactly. That, you know, hear, hearing hearing you say that, that you weren't aware, it made me in focus. Well, I realized it more because this was my, you know, second, third read through. So, yeah, yeah, you that that's true. Uh, had that been my first time, I maybe wouldn't have realized that as well. Oh, yeah, I definitely didn't the first time through. I didn't. I'm with you. I didn't know what the end game was going to be. Uh, you know, I always, and, and the first read through, and this is, I, and this will move us to the next thing. So what happens is after um, Capes for Christ um, and Huey finds out that Annie is Starlight and he acts like a giant dick to her. Um, that's my personal opinion. This is when Huey is at his lowest of the low. And I'm like, and what you said, Brad, the, the focus is changing. And do you wonder, do you think like Ennis, made Huey out to be, to borrow a phrase from my British friend over there, a giant twat, I believe is how you would say it, Dave. Um, I hope I said said the accent right. Um, Was that intentional, do you think, so that we, so that Huey does fall down so that we're okay, that we're, I mean, yeah, we go back to Scotland with Huey, but the focus is going to be on Butcher now. And so Mm. was it so that we're not so in love with Huey, not like we're in love with Huey, but you know what I mean? Like Huey's our guy, we're Huey. And it's like, whoa, I'm not. You know, what did you make of like the way that they break him down and make yeah, him I think such it, an it, ass? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'll, I'll come back to that word uh, corruption again. This 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 was definitely a different Huey than we saw at the beginning of the story. And I think that was because of all he has not only all that he's gone through and, and seen, but how he has been manipulated. And yeah, he was, he, he, he was a gigantic twat for sure. And it's kind of, you know, from a reader's perspective, when, you know, you were saying that, you know, Huey was our avatar and it kind of hurt to see our eyes into the story um, kind of fall from grace. So that's, uh, you know, that's another very clever thing that Ennis did and how he, you know, directed and, and kind of constructed the story. Yeah, I agree. What did you make of that day when, when Huey does that? I mean, it's pretty rough. It's horrible how he treats Annie. That was just heartbreaking. But also, like, I don't know. I was so mad and my heart was like, I couldn't tell how to feel. I couldn't figure that out either, because bearing in mind, I, I'm 
reading these stories through in 2021. And I, I think it's funny, actually, in the last four or five years, I think in so many ways we've regressed. Um, but in other ways, I, I do think we have progressed as well. And I was trying to think about this being in the 2000s and Huey's reaction. I, I would think a lot of, uh, you know, machismo type blokes would be before he finds out about any uh, and, and, you know, Butcher, again, this is where you're thinking, what is Butcher actually up to? Because he, he's intentionally thrown that out there. And, and at the time, you're thinking, well, there's no other reason than to just be a dick about it. You know, you knew what was going to happen. You knew he'd be destroyed by that. But but you still just go ahead and do it. Um, I, I do think in the 2000s, so certainly the mid-2000s, a lot of blokes would be like that. Uh, and, and what I'm talking about is she's like being a bit experimental. You know, what it's like when you're, you know, uh, in your twenties, you, you're madly in love with someone there and, and, uh, you know, you just want to do a John and Yoko stay in bed all day. Yeah. Don't you? Um, uh, but, and she's trying to show him some porn and stuff. And he's like, Oh no, I don't want to see that. You know, uh, two blokes and a woman that's ridiculous no if it's a wee lassie you know that'd be all right so so he's kind of telegraphing that he's a bit narrow-minded you know and and a bit misogynistic and uh, about how he thinks and i i just couldn't help but thinking look huey at best you're a six <laughs> right you still snagged no nine. offense simon i'm sure simon would admit it himself <laughs> you snagged a nine there's something you could just look over this surely <laughs> but he he didn't seem he seems to be utterly closed off he didn't want to hear what the explanation was um I, and you know I, I was trying to put myself back into my let's let's say early twenties. Although I guess Huey's uh, is anything from twenty three to thirty, isn't he? Yeah. And if someone who who you were you had up on a pedestal, she was just perfect, just in every way. And then you see something like that, it would be an absolute gut punch of all gut punches, wouldn't it? That doesn't excuse how he behaves after. But I, I couldn't help but feel have empathy at how destroyed he would have been there. Um, but I, I, so I, I think if Ennis had have released this in the last few years, I'd have thought he was writing it specifically to say, look at what a dick Huey has been, you know. Um, but I, like I say, I, I was possibly overanalyzing it and just thinking, well, in the context of that time. You know, would he, I, I mean, when we get on to when he goes back home, there are some things there, again, which I think that this is clearly written from a few years ago. So that that's why I was probably tying myself up in knots, thinking, was he being really clever and, you know, or, or was he just, you know, uh, trying to write Huey as if he thinks most heterosexual blokes would uh, would react? Yeah. What do you think, Brad? Yeah, I, I I do think that there we do have a little empathy as well. It's it. This is kind of the the genius of how Ennis builds his characters because reading that it wasn't 
oh, I hate Huey now. It was like, oh, Huey, what are you doing? Come on, you don't really mean that. You didn't really mean to do that. This is just something, this isn't you. This is some outside influence. And that, again, goes back to kind of being an example of showing just how he had been manipulated and corrupted. But yeah, even even when he was his acting his worst, you did feel kind of like this, that you that you knew Huey enough to know that this wasn't really him, you know. It's like that it, it's not quite in his DNA to be like this. Something else is going on. Hundred yeah. percent. You just nailed it there. Yeah. He's been manipulated one hundred percent, hasn't he? And he's acting like a dick. Exactly how Butcher wants him to react. And so, yeah, Butcher, yeah. and that's the moment, right? Yeah, I think that's totally right. Is that Butcher has has done, and, and they say, and that's, again, you see all this at the end, but you see Mother's Milk tells him. I love Mother's Milk. I think he may be my favorite character. I think I said this last time, but I just- He's awesome. Yeah. He's, I mean, I have a soft spot for the female because I just do, because you just feel so bad for her. She's, her life is awful. Um, so I get why Frenchie is so in love with her. Like, I get it. Um, you know, because, but, but Mother's Milk is just, because he, he doesn't bullshit ever. Like, you know, he and Billy throw down and he's trying to look out for Wee Huey. And, and so, yeah. Um, but, you know, there's just something there because Butcher got to him first and, you know, just drip, drip, drip the awful things. And we learn at the end, the awful things that Butcher's been doing to him all along. Um, it's just like this emotional torture. So, yeah. So when he finally breaks, because there's maybe, and was it like, it was during the super duper one, um, Right, or maybe it was right at the beginning of Capes to Christ where Billy says, would, would, uh, you're scared of me, aren't you? And Huey admits it. Is that, that was in this section, right? Yeah, I believe so. Okay. So it's in that moment when Huey admits it that Butcher knows he's got him. Huey admits, yes, I'm scared of you. And so he's like, good. That's, you're not scared of Mother's Milk, but you should be. I mean, everybody should fucking be scared of Mother's mm. Milk. I mean, he's, he's big. I mean, those panels when he's next to Billy, he's bigger than everybody on the screen. Like he's, but because his heart is good, you're not as afraid of Mother's Milk. Like, you know, because he's a good guy and you like him and you want to hang out with him and you want him to have your back. Where Billy, you're not sure what side of the fight he'd be on the more you get to know him. So it's just like really fascinating that, um, yeah, you totally see the manipulation and, and you see, you know, Huey projecting all of his anger that's really supposed to be at Butcher at Annie. Mm. Because again, that's what you do to the people you care the most about. You shit on them when you shouldn't. A true statement. You know, so yep. anyway, anyway, that's, that's, I, so this is what happened. So I'm curious, did you, um, we should have talked a bit about this off air and I can always cut this from this excellent podcasting and planning. Um, did you guys read the Highland Laddie, the miniseries when Huey, it's just Huey by himself in Scotland, not drawn by Derek? Yeah. Yep. Brad? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. You were breaking up there. I didn't. Oh, the sorry. Question. The, the Highland good. Laddie backstory where it's just Huey by himself. Derek didn't do the art. It's just when Huey meets yeah. up with his yeah. mates from high school. Okay. So you, okay. Yeah. So that's part of your, I, I'm not sure what version everybody's reading. So again, high quality <laughs> podcasting, everybody. I yeah, will yeah. probably <laughs> cut that. Um, so anyway, so we get this six issue miniseries that's just Huey. And I just want to, and I know we're not here to really talk about the art, but you really notice that Derek's not drawing it. And it's just, it's my least favorite story. And I know that's not what we're here to do. We're here to do deep dives and not just be petty or anything, but I understand why it's there. Um, to a degree, I think personally, I would have, I would have not had it go. I would have made it a three because like the Barbary coast is only three. 
and um, proper planning and preparation is only three. And, you know, so it's like, you've got these other backstories that you cram into three. I don't think it needed to be six issues. And I get, I don't know, I was just taken out of it because it was, a, it, I just didn't like the way it looked. Um, anyway, what do you guys make of, we get to learn more about Huey. Do you think, am I being petty? Is it just because Derek's not drawing it and so I'm butthurt? Or do you think it adds, do we need it to be that long to add to the story? Tell me that I'm wrong. Give me the reason why it's here. I, I know I, I can't give you a reason why you're wrong because I kind of agree. Um, <laughs> I, I think that um, the, the, the few miniseries that were attached with the boys, um, they do kind of drag a little bit, but that's just, that's just me. And there's a funny thing about Garth and sometimes he gets with these artists that, and creates such a relationship with them that you can't imagine that story told by any other artist. Preacher, and we talked about this on the Preacher podcast, not to go back to Preacher, but I can't imagine Preacher without Steve Dillon's art. And right. I can't imagine the boys really without Derek Robertson. It's just, they just go hand in hand so much that one cannot exist without the other in the way that, you know, and, and, and to be as powerful and as enjoyable as they are. It's fair. Dave, what did you make of Highland Laddie? I think I actually really enjoyed this bit. And I was less focused on the artwork um, and more just, I was immersed into the story. You know, you've got Huey's from this small place in Scotland and he's gone off to the big cities. He's been in, immersed in this fantastical world. All right, he's had tragedy and everything. And, and you know, he's been on this roller coaster of all roller coasters. But it's been a, a larger than life existence for the last few years. And then he's he's spend spent a load of that time longing to go back to where he came from and back to that life. And then he realizes that when he goes back, that everything's moved on without him. And actually the things that he was longing for, he forgot. Actually, they really annoy him. <laughs> They kind of suck a lot, yeah. <laughs> and his friends were absolute bastards to him, you know. These friends he had in his mind, he adored. And and I thought, I, I don't know. I mean, so, Tony, you've moved halfway across the country. I, I don't yeah. know if you ever go back. I, I've i moved out. I'm a different part of England from where I grew up. But but even from the age of 18, when I went off to college, as, as you guys call it, I remember coming back uh, the first Christmas after being away for a few months and I met up with old school friends and, and things and immediately I'd already recognized that our lives were diverging. Um, and if I'd have stayed, if I hadn't moved away and, and embraced moving away and, and that independence, great time in your life, isn't it? 18 to 21. Um, you know, I, that's what I would be doing, but that's that's not what I did. And so our, our paths have diverged. And so I think because of my own journey in life, I, I was this really resonated with me, that feeling of just hang about. I had all these nostalgic feelings about where I'd come from. I'm now back. God, this is crap. Everything's bugging me, and it, you know it's it's not the same as it was. And and where I said about things that hadn't aged well, you know, you get his mate who is has got all the muscles and everything, and he's he's in a dress, and it's sort of drawn 
for laughs, isn't it? Oh, look at this big muscly guy who's clearly a guy in a dress. And I just think in 2021, although sometimes you get a bit down that we've regressed in the last sort of half decade, then I think about things like that and it's like, mm, all right, okay, we, we have moved on in some areas. And I, I don't think that story would, you know, I don't think they'd do it quite the same if they did it now. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. that's fair. I think that's a great assessment. And I'll, I'm curious to hear what you say as well, Brad. But for me, I was antsy to get out of my town. I'm from a little tiny town, like where he was from. And, and while I have no ill will towards most of the people that are from there, or that, you know, I would, I truly, truly had no friends who were in my grade in high school. They were either older than me or younger than me. So it's like, they were, I was friendly. It was a tiny little shit town, like 68 people in my graduating class or something, you know? So it wasn't like, so for me, once I was gone, I did spend, you know, some time there now and again, but like for me, getting out, getting out, not going back was the thing. I was not nostalgic for it at all, like mm. ever. And um, so like that may be why it's not hitting me, but I, I appreciate, but hearing what you're saying, that makes perfect sense because for sure, you're right. That's exactly what Kiwi's doing. Um, yeah. I don't know. What about you, Brad? Cause you're from a, you're from a, populated area so have you left it or are well, you still there I, I, i'm originally from a small town in northeast ohio and when i graduated like the day after i graduated college i moved to new york to start working at a music magazine so uh, you know and I, I still i have a lot of family back there so i still go back you know a few times a year but uh you know, I love my family and it's not them, but there's other certain cultural things. Like when I'm back there, it doesn't take me long to realize why I, why I moved out of there to yeah. New York, you know, I mean, uh, you know, like <laughs> I said, it has nothing to do with my family, but it's just, yeah, I, I can see why I, I got out of there. Yeah. It's um, yeah. It's a bit of a, a culture shock. And sometimes I think when you, when you do move out, you, you, you kind of get nostalgic because you kind of remember what you liked and forgot what you didn't like. So when you go back into that environment, all that stuff that you didn't like comes flooding back real quick. Yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense, Brad. And I think what Dave says is that um, it's really true. I think that we do see the way that Huey, um, Huey does long for that. And so I do think that that works. And maybe just because for us, you know, we didn't, we, we had a different, um, and it sounds like Dave, when you did go back, you were like, Yeesh, I'm glad I went, but you, and that's what this is for Huey. It's that, cause he doesn't, you know, his, this is kind of his getting out and going to uni and, and seeing the world is joining the boys. And, mm -hmm. you know, he, and that's the other thing too, being with Robin, he really thought that was his life. He thought his life was yeah. going to be something totally different. And then, so in these last six months that we've known him to a year, he, he moved away from his little town. He met the love of his life. She dies. And then he becomes a superhero killer. Um, that's a lot. So he definitely isn't going to fit back in his box once he goes back. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I think you sold me on it, Dave. Nice. Did he sell you on it, Brad? He, I think that was good. Uh, yeah, yeah, I might have to go and revisit it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as for the, as for the uh, cross-dresser guy, you're right that it's definitely played for laughs, but with the gas, he's also got a guy who has to wear a gas mask all the time. His other friend, these are his friends. Um, they don't seem to care. And, and the guys in the bar don't seem to care. And I don't think that like Huey's parents care about him. So I do mm -hmm. feel like you're right. It's drawn for laughs, but I don't think, I think the people in the town are like, yeah, that's just him. Like we don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. Like we've moved on. Like they're not and making fun of him. But I think you're right. It's handled as an artist. It's shown to us as like, isn't this silly? 
Um, yeah. Because again, it's through Huey's eyes. But I feel like the people in that community, I at least I appreciate that he's not a pariah. He's at the bar. Yeah. He's hanging out. Everybody likes him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a fair point. Yeah, it is definitely drawn for laughs. We're supposed to laugh at him. But, yeah. but now that I'm seeing it through your eyes of what you're saying, of like this village hasn't moved on, but they have. I mean, that's pretty amazing. This like mm. this guy lives in your town, your little tiny white town in Scotland. And you've got this guy who's a crossdresser and you don't care. He's just like, buy him a pint and let's move well, on. Plus, I mean, if, if people were taking the piss out of him, he, he would beat the living shit out he of him. He would beat the huge. shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's like, literally, if you guys haven't read it, the only way I can describe him to listeners is he is the human embodiment of Fred Flintstone. <laughs> That's what he is. He's <laughs> just, just like, you know, like, uh, he's just this, mo- like, you know, you think about Flintstone and you think, oh, he's this rock, but he's just a badass. You know, he lifts rocks and he wrangles dinosaurs and he's just like if fred flintstone were a living person this is what he would look like i just so so. seeing as you brought up the flintstones i actually saw a really terrible joke today that you might appreciate uh says media reports uh that people in dubai wouldn't understand the humor in the flintstones but i know for a fact that people in abu dhabi do Wow. You should do that at Mark Russell because he wrote yeah. the run of the Flintstones for, uh, oh my God, that's brilliant. I love that. I love it. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Oh man. Okay. So then after we get away, from, that's amazing. So after we get away from, uh, from that, we, we, we learn some more backstory and this Brad, um, because you are a, a, a New Yorker, I, you know, I didn't think about that. I should have talked to you again, bad podcast planning. So we, we relive, this is the first time, and this then sticks through the rest of the book, where it is clearly based in the real world, where up until this point, it's not. And that, you know, because the president and the, and the vice president aren't real people. But now 9-11 is officially, I mean, they is officially a thing. We learn VOD Americans parts in it. We learn, and then, you know, later at the end, Nancy Pelosi's president at the very end of this, everybody spoil. So, um, so that's real. And there's other real events that they talk about. So of all the real life events for them to use as a New Yorker, how do you feel about that? Was that exploitative in any way for you? How does that make you, you feel? You know, n- I don't think it was exploitive uh, uh, at all. Um, because I keep coming back, like when this book originally came out, it was you know, uh, 2004, I think. So this is probably at this point, maybe 2006. And that was still a huge, huge mental, you know, PTSD or whatever it might be for people. 9-11 was still very, very huge in their mind. And it, I think it kind of made sense that, you know, if you're going to tell a New York story, at that time, you're going to have to deal with 9-11 in some way. It's just you just can't not do it. So I, I don't think that it was exploitive. I think it was, you know, kind of necessary. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I and, and especially in a world with superheroes um, and how 9-11 would unfold in that kind of world. Uh, I, I, not only was it not ex- exploitive, but I think it was kind of fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I agree, because it's always one of those things that when I remember, and this is just, you guys can all laugh at me, um, but as a young boy in Southwest Michigan who doesn't know anything in the whitest town in Michigan, 
Um, I learned so much, and I don't know if you guys remember this at all. Um, it probably didn't get published over there, Dave and Brad, maybe you'll remember it, but DC made a comic book where superheroes grappled with apartheid. And what I remember most is that there was a, uh, I think it was Hal, I don't think it was John, I think it was Hal Jordan, puts out a person, like a person that he's in South Africa for a thing, you know, as a Green Lantern of Earth. And he actually puts a guy out, he saves a guy, a, a African, a, a black South African, um, who had been lit on fire, had like put in tires, lit on fire, and he stopped him. And it like addressed this whole like racial violence in a comic book. I just want to jump in here real quick and acknowledge my own straight white dude issues. Uh, the comic just mentioned in the show was not Green Lantern. It was in fact, Corey and her, um, Starfire herself. It was a Titans spotlight issue. I remember the scene that I described is exactly the same for whatever reason. Instead of making it an orange woman, a woman of color, I turned it into a white dude. So I apologize to everybody. The story was still good. And of course it was Corey. That makes a lot more sense anyway. But so I'll put a link to the show notes where you can take a look at that. So I apologize to everyone for my own bias coming through in my memory. To be fair, I hadn't read the comics since I was a kid, but that is not a good reason. So sorry about that. And I can't, I'm sure I can find it and I'll put a link in the show notes to it. But like, that was the moment, like I knew of apartheid and I knew, you know, but I was like eight and 10 or whatever. So it was like a comic book was this thing where it dipped into reality. And that was the moment. So when I was re, I would have forgotten all about it. Like it mattered to me in the moment, but now I know way more about apartheid, obviously as an adult who's read a book. But as a kid who read that, so now coming back to reading this, I was like, oh, is this going to be a thing where, like you just said, Brad, comic book companies have to deal with the fact that the real life sucks. And so, you know, this is maybe Garth Ennis's commentary on that. It's like, look, superheroes can't be real because if superheroes were real, this wouldn't have happened. Or if it did happen, they had to be in on it for all these X, Y, Z reasons. So, um, I don't know, that's just what I thought of. Do you remember that comic at all, Brad? Is that anything you remember? My having no, a stroke and a fever thing. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sure it existed. But okay. hearing you tell that story, I'll just yeah. say this, is that it, the, the, those moments, though, when you're talking about how comics can reflect reality, you know, when sometimes they have to deal with that reality. And those moments, I think, are what made me a comic book fan for life and not something that I just stopped dealing with after a certain age because I did learn so much. And it was such a window into the world at a young age to help teach me things and and that would have been you know that that issue definitely would have been one of those had i had i known about it totally fair totally fair yeah so what do you make of that dave like this is the moment when they they break into the real world and they again use a real life event like a horrific event that obviously everybody knows of um so what did you make of that um the 9-11 being in there is that again aren't you know is that the day because this is you know, Ennis is always, while he's writing a superhero book, he's always digging at the superhero industry. So is this mm. just another one of those? Or is it just what Brad said? It's like, he's just got to face reality. And it, this isn't a joke. I'm just sticking it in there because I have to. Yeah, I think it's not quite, uh, from my perspective, it's not because he has to. But what I do enjoy is when people can knit fiction in with real life events that you you have locked away in your memory um I, and it is you know i wouldn't say it's easy i, I was just thinking it was 21 years ago now 9 11 yeah insane because it 
it burned such a, a memory into, I'm mm-hmm. sure, everyone who was watching their TVs at, at, at the time. It, it was just such a, a landmark moment, you know, for, for all the wrong reasons. But I think a little bit in the way that the X-Men First Class movie kind of knitted in the Cuba Missile Crisis with, you know, the first X-Men story. I, I think it, it was just that. It was just reflecting the fact that you had this huge event in New York um, and you're writing in the mid-2000s, so you kind of have to acknowledge at least that this happened. And actually, because we're dealing with stories about corrupt, you know, uh, corporations who were trying to push uh, superheroes into the military and stuff, it makes sense that they would be involved in some some kind of way. So it's not, you know, again, someone wearing their underpants on the outside and saving the day. Right. It's the fact that they bodged up the whole damn thing. So, um, so yeah, it, it makes perfect sense to me. And I guess the other thought is, you know, I, I almost feel like, although it's just knitting into the the fictional story, doing it at this time, you could see if if DC were still publishing it, that DC would probably get a bit nervous about uh, putting out something like this. I remember seeing a South Park episode where uh, they were taking the mickey out of the subway guy, what was his name, Jared or, or something like that, and they were making jokes about AIDS. And at the end of the episode, they're like, okay, has it been long enough? Can we joke about AIDS now? (laughs) And and until I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, it's one of those untouchable areas that that you can't joke about. Um, And 9-11, I think, is all right. They're not joking about it really here, but, you know, they're knitting it into a fictional world. Uh, which which is full of satire. So, yeah, I, I think the fact that it's published by Dynamite meant Ennis could just do whatever he wanted here. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I just, I was, I'm with you. I like it when comics touch on the real world um, uh, because, again, you know, you have to comment on, if you're, if you're commenting on the world, then certain things have to exist. You can't, um, when I went on Scott's show and we did the, uh, the Desert Green Island comics. Green Arrow. Well, uh, the, well, Green Lantern, Green Arrow for sure is basically. I love that. World. I yeah. love that episode. Yeah, I don't yeah. Think that I've was me and Max. That was me and Max. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. But yep. that one definitely is. But when I went on Scott's show to do Desert Island, um, the with the one where um, when Tim Drake arrives and shows up as Robin for the first time, that mm-hmm. actually um, Joker's or Two Face is listening to the radio, and you know George Bush is the president. Like it's set in the world <laughs> at the time, and it was like one of those things that Marv Wolfman. Um, and George Perez did more than anybody was set things in, in the real real time and place, which again mm. is part of DC's problem with uh, time, you know, uh, because you're like, wait, you can't have this. So Tim Drake became Robin during the first Bush administration. So yeah. how old is how old is Tim Drake? Whereas, you know, with this, this story ends, right? So it's easier to set it in in real time because yeah. it is in real time. So yeah. yeah. So anyway. Um, okay, sorry. I just thought I had to go down there, and I appreciate your insight, Brad, as someone who was—I mean, it's not like you were there, there, but you were—you were more well, there than any of us. I yeah. I mean, I actually I was on my way to work, so you know, I Hello. from New Jersey, and you go down to get into the Lincoln Tunnel. There's a, a helix 
road and you can see the whole skyline so i actually you know saw the the towers on fire that day so yeah that that that's wow. something that uh yeah that's something that definitely left a mark and it's still in, in so many ways it, it does it feels like yesterday i can't believe that it's been you know 20 20 years this september it's insane yeah yeah yeah, it's uh, yeah. So I appreciate that. And again, I should have probably talked to you about that beforehand. It's like, hey, but yeah, I knew you wanted to talk about it. So you knew it was in there before. But, you know, so I appreciate you yeah. you talking about it because I think that's interesting. Oh, sure. We all have different perspectives. You know, you were there. I was in Michigan. Dave, you were in England. And it meant something different to everybody who saw it. And, you know, like you said, you can't ever unsee it. But to see it. Um, so, you know, it's just always it's a, it's a tough it's a tough thing. And of course, then the rest of this book, they then they the, after this moment, there's more real world stuff, right? We learn about Mallory um, in the Battle of the Bulge, and we learn about um, Butcher in Falklands. Is that where Butcher? Falkland, sure? though, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was the <laughs> conflict with Argentina, and yeah, then that's right. UK. Yeah, over a naval over the Faroe Islands. That's right. Okay. Not the Faroe. <laughs> Falcon Islands. What am I talking Falcon about? Islands. Yeah, it was the Falcon yeah. Islands. Yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah. It was. Uh, <laughs> that was Margaret Thatcher's way to say, "I'm a badass. Don't fuck with me." That's my. Pretty that's much. the American yeah. version of that. As Margaret Thatcher was pissed. <laughs> oh, it's most yeah, most xenophobic, uh, rabble rousing war, and and not to discredit what what the soldiers did there, but ultimately we had a bunch of professional soldiers against a a bunch of conscripts, and you know it was yeah. It was ridiculous, really. Well, again, so, but again, that'll be a good perspective because, again, that's what my version of the, what we learned about the Falkland Islands. I only learned about the Falkland Islands on my own. It isn't something we learn about in high school. Brad, did you guys learn about it in Northeast Ohio? Yeah, I, uh, very briefly. Um, it was mentioned. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, it's funny. I, I think I learned more about it from Bloom County because there was a series of Bloom County cartoons oh, yeah, yeah. that, that dealt yeah. with it. Yeah. I think I learned more from it in real time. Yeah. 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 A cartoon in real time than we were learning about it in our high school. So what do you make? So we've got two more. Now we've got some European real life things. We've got the Battle of the Bulge. <laughs> we've got the Falcon Islands, you know, wrapped into this story. And again, because we keep, I think our focus of this issue is obviously the corruption of it. And we see you, I think you just kind of touched on it, Dave, that, it, it, I mean, what is the British take on the Falklands? You're, again, not to say anything shitty about the Marines who did their job. They were just doing their job. But what do you make of their take on it here? Is that, because you know, obviously Ennis is, is, you know, British himself. So was this, again, do you think an important part of this boy's story to show how all governments are icky? It's not just, he's not just bashing America. He's letting everybody know that while this is Vought America, it's really, you know, everything is ugly all around. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I think, oh, crikey. With that, I'm going to throw some unstructured things out there and we'll, we'll try and piece together a, a, a possible coherent story. So, I, I mean, I, I think I'm probably in the minority, you know, at, at the time. And, you know, certainly all of the right wing newspapers, this was a great British victory and I think I think half of our problem in the UK is that we're still fighting the second world war you know there's a lot of British sentiment that you know this was a great thing you know we beat Germany uh, twice you know in two world wars and how great is that and you know we're, we're still having that battle you know there's this pride from people who've never you know been in a conflict or experienced it or understand 
the kind of socio-economic reasons that we ended up where we were as as a European uh, continent. So, yeah, absolutely, there was a huge amount of pride, um, and we beat back the Argies. But when you scratch below the surface, like I say, we had a, a profession, proper professional army, um, and and the Falkland Islands are over on the. Uh, you know, they're over by Argentina. And after the Second World War, you know, all the all the top dogs in the world, we were all like, yes, uh, uh, imperialism is a bad thing, isn't it? And we're like, we've got all these countries behind our back. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> we should give you your independence. All right, we'll give you your independence as well. But we still hang on to these little things. Like we've got the Falcon Islands over by Argentina. We've got Gibraltar, which is over by Spain. And geographically, these exist elsewhere, but they're still considered part of, uh, of of Britain. So, yeah, it's, it's all a bit strange, really. You, you just... <sighs> For me, actually, you know, Falcon and Winter Soldier, I think, explores this brilliantly with uh, the character of John Walker, the US agent. And you get this concept of this, like, in, uh, nationalism in, in overdrive and how that can become toxic and misplaced and misguided and how different that is to Steve Rogers' Captain America, you know, who believes in the ideal. He believes on the 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 foundations, you know, uh, uh, of America rather than America as, as what it is. But like I say, you know, it makes sense for me that you put Billy Butcher into a conflict where he can be a, a badass, you know. And so you've seen with uh, Frank Castle and the Punisher, you know, the conflicts that he's involved in uh, get re kind of redone. In fact, uh, Tony Stark. You know, he's his origins been been redone in different countries, depending on, you know, uh, the time that that origin is retold. So for me, this bit was more about that. Just you show him you, you, you know, he is a badass. He is basically the, the equivalent of Frank Castle, isn't he? Uh, he takes no shit from anyone and, and he's working to his own agenda. Yeah, I think that's fair. I just, I, I agree with all everything that you're saying and I appreciate your insight into that. I mean, because for me, it, it's the, 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 the thing I see about this section, this, this uh, mini, this is one of the other side uh, mini series. It's about, it's Butcher's past um, and you learn his time in the Falklands and then how he meets Becky and then what happens to Becky and boy, is that brutal. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty ugly, that's a pretty ugly uh, death for Becky. Um, but uh, what I guess the idea of like, you know, what America, what we do. And again, to me, the commentary in America, um, and you said, you know, you kind of changed the war, but you see um, what, and Brad, you can, I don't know how, how much you know about this. But I'm going to throw you, I'm going to make you my, uh, my fact checker on this, but the, like the highest rate of homelessness in America is veterans. Yes, is that correct, Brad? Do you, yeah, is that a fact yeah, that I believe that, that. Yeah, I, I think I have I have heard that. Yeah, so we use these soldiers up, right? We're always like respect the troops and do this to the troops, but we're training them, and we see this in Butcher Baker, Candlestick Maker. We see Butcher learning to be a butcher, learning to be a killer, and then once he's not killing, he doesn't know what else to do. So his violence is there because you take 
19 year old boys and you give them weapons and you train them to be, you point and shoot. And so you're right, the comparison to the Punisher is clear there. Um, he looks a lot like Frank too. I mean, you know, there's a lot of that. That's obviously, that's mm. the point. Um, but there's also this commentary of like, what kind of, is that, to use our word of the day, is that another level of corruption that you're just like, um, you know, you're using, it's not like, it's not covert, it's just overt. It's like, we're gonna use you, we're gonna pay you next to nothing, we're gonna train you to kill people. And then when you're done and you're broken, we're not gonna help fix you unless you wanna continue to kill people and be an asset for us. In the case of Billy Butcher, that's the case. Can I just check? Have you guys seen Falcon and the Winter Soldier? I have not. Yeah, okay. I, have. I have. That's fine. I, I won't spoil it then. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry, it's just one of those things where it's like, it's over now, so I'm going to sit. That's what I did with WandaVision. When it was over, I just sat and binged it all. I have them, I just haven't sat to do it yet. So it's, all, it's okay. all I'll say I mean, is that just that theme, exactly yeah. what you said there, you know, they've trained Billy Butcher. They built him up to be this weapon and you know once he's ended his service time you know he's still that weapon that you've built and you've now discarded and you've released into the wild what what, what do you think is going to happen there so nothing yeah. good yeah and and that's why in america so many of them our va here because we're not a socialized country our va system is a shit show it's the only part of our government that is technically supposed to be socialized but nobody knows how to run it and so there's just all of these people who just aren't getting their services. And that's a whole other show. I don't want to go down that route, but that's, I think of that when I read this section, I'm like, if Billy were American, he'd be crazy li living under a bridge. That's, so anyway. You know, so, so, so not to, to go off on a complete tangent. Um, I always, I haven't been probably for, for the last five years. I haven't, I haven't been back to the U S but for a period of my career, I was going back and forth quite a lot. And one of the things that always struck me, and, and this is a post-80s thing, I think, is that, you know, if I'm sat in a sports bar or something like that and the commercials are on, which is like every five minutes, uh, <laughs> yeah. there's always adverts about veterans. And, you know, they're always happy adverts, aren't they? Um, and it, it seemed to me that, America embraces its veterans and and I know this I know that wasn't always the case but it seemed to me that every time I went across there was an openness about embracing the veterans whereas uh, in in the UK we don't we don't do that at all a couple of my uncles were were in the army for a period um, and because of the troubles with Ireland you weren't even allowed to be in public with your uniform on because you would wow. make yourself a target. You know, if you if you were just in your uniform and you wandered home, brilliant, right? Soldier lives right there. You'd put a target on your back. So it's always been, there's, again, from the right-wing community, there's a huge amount of pride in the British Army and what we've done in the past and the British Empire and, and we've got the best army, the SAS and all of that. Um, but it's... It's not really, it's certainly not in the media at all, nearly as much as it is in the US. So I guess I'm surprised that. Here's, here's this, not to interrupt yeah. you, uh, but, yeah, yeah. but here's, here's what I think is, is a big difference is the fact that, you know, maybe in England, they are overt about it, but America wants to act like they support the veterans and 
they want to put on this face that, yeah, we care about our military and our soldiers. But if America really, really did, they wouldn't be the highest level of homelessness and things like mm-hmm. that. I think that we I think that we have a lot of work to do um, to get to that point where we would like to be. Um, and uh, back to Garth Ennis, in America, there is there's a certain phrase and, you know, it's and I'll go ahead and be political. The, the right wing loves their country like a child loves their parents. They can do no wrong. But the left wing loves their country like an adult who expects certain things and, and, and wants to continue to grow. And I think that um, Garth Ennis has a very mature level of patriotism and how he deals with nationalism and, and the military. And I think that, you know, the, what, one of the things that Garth Ennis is most known for outside of um, these crazy books with kind of you know, juvenile humor is his war stories. And he always treats um, the soldiers with with respect, but he does not let the power structure off uh, off the hook in what put them there in those dangerous positions from, mm. you know, from the beginning. I agree completely. And I think that's the tie back to this whole section, because we learn about Butcher's time in the war. And we also learn about that Mallory was, you know, in the war, in the Battle of the Bulge. And we, and we see these two generations of boys, and of course they're called the boys. And that's another thing, you know, that the term it used to be, um, the USO, which is like the, this, where Bob Hope, like that's where you know who Bob Hope is, right, Dave? So it's like the USO yeah. is this, everybody knows Bob Hope. So there's this whole, you know, they go on tour and they still, the USO is still a thing. And they go around and they, they entertain the troops, but it used to be called for the boys. It wasn't like for the troops. Now that's what it is, but that was, so this idea of the boys, and, um, you know, these these soldiers that you're using and, and really, truly, Brad, I think you just hit on it perfectly, is that the boys are all adult men and a woman, which is, of course, the joke in and of itself, who are, again, only one American is being used here. Another thing of this commentary on who America uses to fight their wars and how that's done. And, you know, um, I, lots to say about, you know, about all of that, too. But then again, once we're no longer in need of you, we'll happily dispose of you in any way, as quickly as possible. So not only are the boys a government weapon, but so are the seven, so are all the suits. Compound V is a government thing that they're just using it to to like, there's even a scene in here where this hits exactly what you're saying, where they're doing a simulation of what would happen if the seven and the boys fight. They're doing a computer simulation. Do you remember that scene? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the the woman who takes the fall at the end is running it. And so on her computer screen, it shows that at the end, um, it'd be Homelander and Black Noir would be the only one. Well, Black Noir would go, mi- yeah, Black Noir and Homelander would be the only ones who would have survived and Maeve would have gone missing in the in mm. the simulation, but all the boys would have been dead. And it's like, that's how they they created all of these monsters. They create the boys, they create the soups to put them against each other to figure out who they can manipulate. And that is just what you're saying, Brad, is this idea that that, you know, we pretend that we want to respect our troops, but we don't. We're just using them as tools. And then when we're done with them, we're going to not use them. We're going to make a commercial and make it seem like everybody loves them. But in reality, mm. we're not. Mm-hmm. Yes, Brad, is that, am I summing up what you're saying well or not? 
Yes, yes, okay. yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think I love your comments. I mean, you said you didn't want to get political, but I actually love that image that, <laughs> that the right wants to pretend that they can do no wrong and the left are like treating them like adults, that you need to, you need to get your shit together. I mean, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, you know, Dave, you've got teenagers. You don't expect that your girls to act the way that they did now that they did when they were five. There's higher yeah. expectations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's awesome. I love that. Brad, philosopher. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, amazing. That was awesome. So, okay. So let's, so this is where we're at. And I didn't, you know, I know we're kind of going through it story by story. Cause I think the reason I chose to do that this time is because if we didn't, we would just jump to the end. <laughs> We'd be like, holy <laughs> shit, this is how it ends. And then the show would be over. So that's why we're, so, so that's what happens. We have this war commentary. We learn that the boys have been around since world war two. We learn that, that Vod America, that is a, is as bad as we think they are. Um, and then Huey returns, and there's this weird Jack from Jupiter story, which, by the way, my favorite art, my favorite panel is comes during the big ride. Um, so the story is Jack from Jupiter has killed a transgendered sex worker, uh, which, again, is pretty far ahead of its time. I think some of it is played, like you said before, about the, um, the tr- cross-dresser is a little bit for laughs, Dave, but mm-hmm. I still think there's a lot of heart here. But there is a scene during the middle of the section where Huey is standing in this art gallery and it is all the classic comic covers, but done with naked people. Did you, did you catch that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is spectacular art. It is, it is everything about telling a story. If you didn't know, you didn't know, but if you look at it, because it's like you're closing, you're just looking at Huey, but over Huey's head, there's the uh, the flash of two Earths, and they're both naked, and the person laying on the ground is naked. And they do Dave's favorite scene in all of comicdom, the murder of the Waynes, but they're also all naked. They're, that's there. <laughs> every scene from every comic book, yeah. DC Marvel, is there, but with like naked people, like a Robert Maplethorpe thing. I just thought that was genius. I don't know if you guys you guys both caught that. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah, that was good. <laughs> yeah, and it was just like, it's just there for nerds. It's just like, hey, just wanted to acknowledge that this is what we're doing. We're still making fun of superheroes. By the way, isn't this funny? Anyway, so that was my favorite thing about the the um, the Jack from Jupiter story. But this is where things really take a turn, where it's like, it almost feels like one of those early one-off stories where it's like, we're going to go on a mission. And so now we're going to investigate Jack from Jupiter, who is their version of the Martian Manhunter. Um and things get pretty bad um, during this. And, um, I, you know, Butcher loses his shit and goes full John Wick, right? Isn't that in this one when the, when? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, ba- that, the bad that, news, uh, the dog dies at the end, everybody. Sorry. Yes. That, that was really sad. Yeah, talk about <laughs> yeah. that, Dave. Yeah, well, I mean, you've mentioned John Wick there. Yeah. But- you know, we've we've known um oh the 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 dog's name. What was the dog's name? It's left my mind. Gone completely blank. All I can think is fuck it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. is, but you know, the the, the bulldog. is his name. Yes, Error. yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My yeah. 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 That's it. That's it. But we've known him since early in the story, and he's you know, this lovable thing all right he's shagging everything but he's basically been trained by butcher to to do that and yeah. uh, i think it's a little bit later isn't it where you know he he, he gets monkey tied down on the bed he does <laughs> he gets yep. terror to, mm-hmm. to do his thing but um 
Yeah, it's like don't kill a dog, you motherfuckers. Dog's got nothing to do with it. So, so that did hit hard for me. I, I was very sad at that bit. Do you think that was done, Brad? Do you think that was done as a way for us to just for one last second get because right before Butcher goes full heel? By the way, everybody, Butcher's the villain. Um, do Do you think this was our last chance to get the readers back on his side? Is that why you killed Terror? Uh, yeah. And plus, I think that there is, for me anyway, maybe I just have a fascination with some of the villain characters, but we, or, or maybe an anti-hero type character that when, when you take something away that that character loves so much, you wonder what's going to happen when they become unhinged. And when Tara died, that was, that was that moment for me. I was like, okay, what's going to happen now? We, this is going to be a new side to this character what's you know what is going to happen how far is he going to go and uh so i think it was a little bit of that of 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 kind of stirring the pot of the possible violence and you know what could happen next with the last bit of of sympathy for uh, for butcher because nobody likes to see a dog die nobody and the way he takes it fiction. out on jack from jupiter is pretty brutal huh he just stabs yeah. him over and over he's like holding yeah. him up against the wall. Why'd you kill my dog, Jack? And then Jack doesn't answer. And he's trying to talk. He doesn't really want an answer there. That's yeah. the thing. He's choking mm-hmm. his throat. So even if he wants, and he's trying to tell him, he's trying to tell him something, but he doesn't care. He just wants to yeah. stab him over and over. Um, yeah, and that and that kind of also shows, you know, that also can kind of put that little bit of sympathy you have to the side and shows just how truly dangerous he is and how off the rails the story's about to go. Way off the rails. I I wonder if the killing of the dog, I think, is intended to, to get you to tap in to your kind of um, your lesser evolved part of the brain. You know, because when Butcher is doing all of these terrible things, you know, if we started off, uh, we started off the story page one issue one and it happens after the dog is killed so we don't even know that and we're just introduced to billy butcher and he's doing he's massacring all these people and doing these terrible things you'd be like well this is the villain but with the dog being killed there you kind of want it you don't want to speak it out loud because you're a bit embarrassed but you want him to go and create havoc and fuck some shit up (laughs) <laughs> and he does and when he does you know you're like yeah you yeah. fucking deserve that didn't you and and it yeah. makes you feel dirty you know because you don't want to feel like that but i i wonder if it's that or, or if it's just me <laughs> <laughs> no, you know you know i i don't think I, I think that you you kind of maybe even said what i was trying to say in a way too maybe better than i said it with the idea of wanting to know what happens next it's wanting to see what happens when he does go crazy that Mm. that where it sparks that reptile brain in you where you want to see him at hit you know go nuts yeah yeah and it's the realization and this is the thing so we've got there's there's 12 episodes left we've got about 20 minutes to go and i think we're going to get there's 12 issues left we're going to get there so here's the thing this is what you just said brad this is it up to this point 60 issues you thought billy was a crazy bastard and now you've got 12 issues left where you see what that that was him restrained. 
for 60 yeah. issues. So you've got this final push of, of, oh, I thought I knew, but I knew nothing. Yeah, and I think you're right. We needed, we needed to see it be something. We needed to know it. And so, because the dog, and again, Taylor, unlike John Wick, but clearly John Wick, those guys read this, right? There's no way they didn't read this and be like, oh, we can do that. We can, we can, we can do that. Yeah. Um, you know, because the, the dog is the surrogate for his wife in this case. So same yeah. situation. So what happens, everybody, is, and this is, I'm really curious. I'm just going to give a quick summary and then we can talk about it. Um, I'm just going to, from, from issue 60 to 72, here's what happens. Um, Hoaglander uh, kills everybody in the White House, uh, surprising to no one. We find out that um, Homelander doesn't actually remember these secret pictures that we've been seeing the whole time. Homelander finally admits to Billy he doesn't actually remember doing any of those things. So then you're like, oh, my God, Homelander's crazy. And then it turns out in really weird, only because of comics or soap operas, that the whole time Black Noir is actually a deranged clone of Homelander. And he's the one who did it all. He did all the horrible stuff to Becky. He did all the horrible stuff to everybody what did you think? Was that, did that piss you off? Or you're like, oh my God, that you again, you're just making fun of that trope, Brad. And then because Brad knew this is Brad's second read. So Dave, yeah. build it up. This will be your first reaction to the big reveal when Black Noir takes his mask off. I can't wait to hear it. Brad, you go first. How was I, uh, um, I know I wasn't annoyed, um, but it would have been possible that I would have in the hands of a lesser writer. So to me, it still, it still felt like a payoff. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't see it coming. And I, I think that there were so many themes and issues, you know, we, we, we've talked about at length that Garth Ennis has touched on that that was the heart and the meat of the story. It wasn't who, who is Black Noir and who really did it. It was everything else that he was trying to say during the course of the story. So that reveal didn't anger me. I think it kind of, kind of, you know, made a weird kind of sense, I guess, at the end. Because Black Noir was, wasn't a character that we got much insight to or, or knew much about um, kind of up until this point, really. So, uh I, I guess in the second reading, I was like, well, I should have seen that coming. But um, but uh, I, I, I still felt that there was a certain amount of payoff there that didn't that didn't uh, didn't piss me off. That's fair. Dave, did you think it was cheap or did you think he's making fun? I felt a bit underwhelmed. I'm not going to lie about it. Um, the, the Also, the handicap that I've got is that in the show they show a bit of Black Noir's face and he, under his mask, he's got this Deadpool-like complexion, like he's all burned and stuff. So it, although it took me by a surprise a bit, I was thinking, and, and I definitely do need to go back and reread it again, but I'm sure he was, Homelander was having a conversation with himself, like the, all the, like the evil part of him in a mirror. And the, the expression and everything seemed to be like the pictures where he's like eating the baby and all that, all the things that Black Noir was doing. And to me, it, it did feel a little bit soap opera. It's like, oh, this guy, they, they, these people have got all these pictures and, and 
clearly there's something wrong with me. So I might just as well be evil anyway. You know, and he, he's pushed to that. It, it just it felt a little soap, or, soap opera-ish to me. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I didn't love that bit, that reveal, I, I must admit. That's totally fair. I What I see it is, as a, it is a soap opera. I think he's making fun of that trope, but he's also acknowledging that this is exactly what happened. What Billy, here's the thing. What Billy did to Huey, they, Vought did to Homelander. It's the same thing. Mm. And so it's like, you're showing how bad Billy really is. Like that's my, because what happens next? Like you think that's the end of the book, but oh no, there's five more issues left. And you're like, what could possibly come? And then you discover that, Billy is awful. So to me, I, I feel like that's that's what I see it is like it's the exact same thing. Is like he gaslit Huey and he gaslit Huey, and we see him do the, say those awful things to Annie and all that that we all agreed was Huey at his worst, but he was also pushed to being that because he was manipulated. And so Homelander has been manipulated this whole time as well to think he's something that he's not because he he doesn't know, you know. So it's just. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm not. Nobody's nobody's actions are good. What Homelander is the worst. Um, and the but it also clues. makes. You... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. There, there, were, there were clues, weren't there? So the whole thing about tricking Maeve to sleep with what she thought was Homelander, and then there's a there's a panel, and he does have the identical build to Homelander, mm-hmm. and so you know. Adam has the uh, exact build of He-Man, but no one... Of course. So I guess, you know, I, I, I could just look past that. So, yeah, I guess get, they were kind of hinting at that, or like at least the artist, you know, he, he, he knew way back then whenever that panel was drawn, and, and I feel like it was fairly early on that he had the build of Homelander. So this was all planned out. It was absolutely, you know, this wasn't a switcheroo soap opera style at, at the end to cram something in. I do think they had this planned all the way. I agree. I think so too. And it, it is a testament to, you know, pre, pre, I mean, the internet existed then, but it's not like it is now. There was no social media or ever. So this never, you know, they never, not that Garth doesn't seem like he's a super chatty guy. So it's not like it would have gotten out anyway, but um, yeah. So that's the big reveal. Black Noir kills Homelander. Billy, with the help of the U.S. Marine Corps, finishes off Black Noir. The seven are over. And so you're like, hooray, the end. But no, another switcheroo. And it turns out that Butcher goes, this is just the worst. So here's what happens, everybody. Billy kills the boys. He kills them. He goes to Russia first. Remember way back when, and he kills him, the love sausage. No, that wasn't love sausage. That wasn't him. That was in the, yeah, that was him, right? That's yeah. in the, yeah. in the, in yeah. the show. It, it they was made him. It was the Russian yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Voss. And then so he goes and kills Voss, which is awful. And um, and you find out later that he like laid and, and bled to death for days before he dies. It was awful. He kills mother's milk. He blows up the female and the Frenchman, right? When the Frenchman finally tells the female that he loves her, but we've known the whole time. That was horrific. And Butcher's just killing everybody. Um, And then he and Huey have a final fight. So the big reveal, Dave, I'll come to you first. Butcher's the villain the whole time. How'd you feel about that? I, I feel like I saw it coming without seeing it coming. Like you say, what was puzzling me all the way through was 
Huey seemed to give him a load of shit at, at different points. And given how we see Butcher react to other people, he always seemed to let Huey get away with a lot more than he'd let anyone else get away with. And it's so it's like, what, what is your game there? Um, now, had I been just reading this month to month and not knowing that it finishes at like 73, I, I'd have probably um, not seen it coming at all. But the fact that you get to, what is it, issue... I don't know. I think it, I feel like it's in the fifties, even when this this heel turn happens, you know, and he he kills off Black Noir and it absolutely brilliant oh. artistry, phenomenally gruesome. Um, that is a bloody yeah, mess. You're thinking, well, there's there's a whole load more issues to tell something, and I I couldn't help but feel like. The way they were kind of jostling for position of leadership of the boys, you know, Huey was wanting more power and authority within the boys. And, you know, again, Billy turns that around and tells everyone and makes Huey look like a bit of a, uh, a tool. So, yeah, I, I kind of, if you'd have asked me before I read it, what's going to happen? I, I, I don't know if I'd have predicted that. And the fact that he was grooming Huey to almost stop him, you yeah. know, there was some door, there was some piece of goodness in him inside that that meant he just didn't want to uh, commit his horrible crimes unopposed. So he, he had to groom someone else. That at least there'd be some kind of fighting chance to to stop him. So yeah, it it, it wasn't a. It wasn't a sixth sense moment for me. It wasn't like a holy shit, I didn't see that coming. It was like, okay, yeah, that that makes sense. All right, that's fair, Brad. Mm-hmm. Billy the Butcher is interesting because in with a lot of anti-heroes, whether it's like, you know, your Tony Sopranos, your Walter Whites, you still root for them. And for a while in the series, you were rooting for Billy the Butcher but in those other stories you you don't you don't necessarily have to deal with the fact in such a visceral way that these are not good people with Billy the Butcher it's just a whole other level of he is a absolute monster not a good person and to an extent it's it's um it's kind of you know the whole stare into the abyss and the abyss stares back well he's He'd been staring into the abyss so long that finally the abyss kind of won out. And, uh, you know, and, and sometimes you get horrible, horrible results. And, you know, I, I think that we were all connected so much with those characters throughout these 73 issues that seeing Billy Butcher take them all out was a real gut punch there towards the end. And especially taken out by somebody that they knew so well and to an extent trusted. So yeah. it was just a hard read. It is a hard read, but here's, and I agree. It's, here's my, here's my twist on it. Here's what I think. Um, you're right. It is, he is a monster, but here's how I'm going to give him like a hero's out. Because his argument is he doesn't even trust Mother's Milk or French, and he, a female and French are both mentally unwell. And Mother's Milk needs, you know, to keep his milk supply going, as it were, which that scene when Huey goes and gets some mother's milk to get ready to fight Butcher is 
a pretty Wonderful. funny one of those last jokes. <laughs> he's pretty, just the look on Huey's face, and he's like, "Oh, oh my god, that's pretty funny." Derek is a genius, but um, he, Billy is still the hero in his own story. Well, he's the villain in our story because his whole thing is now that I've wiped out the soups, I'm I'm I got to kill the boys because I can't leave. Compound V is evil. Compound V is what killed Becky. Is what he sees it as. Compound V made Black Noir do the things that he did. Compound V is bad. Compound V is, is and once he's eradicated it, he's willing to kill his own friends and then ultimately convinces his little brother to kill him, which is what happens at the end is he convinces Huey to kill him after they fall off the Empire State Building. And that's just, you don't see the fall. I love that. It's between one issue and the next. It's just like they're falling out of the building and then they're just laying there a bloody mess. Like they didn't, they just cut. They're just like, you don't need to see them fall. Like you get it. Um, but, uh, I feel like that's how he makes himself a hero in his own mind is that he's eliminating this from the world. And that makes him heroic. What do you think? Is that, is Billy trying to get a hero's exit or does he know he's the villain? What do you guys think? Oh, I think that he thinks he's the hero. I, 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 I do think he, I mean, what's that line from, uh, uh, I forget what movie it was. Nobody thinks they're the bad guy. Um, I they're think, always uh, the hero of their own story. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the reason I agree, I agree with you because I think he says, "Do you agree, Dave, that he thinks he's the hero?" I, I'm not so sure. Actually, I think he's driven. Um, he's on a path, but like I say, I, I feel like there's a part of him that knows what he's doing is wrong or else he wouldn't set up Huey. You wouldn't build him up to be this character that could oppose him because ultimately when he, when he first brings him into the boys, he couldn't go head to head with, uh, with Billy. Uh, Huey couldn't. So I feel like he kind of knows that what he's doing is wrong, but he just doesn't know how to get off the train. So, you know, that's why he set Huey up to to oppose him. I think if he truly believed he was the hero, there'd be no need to set set up mm. that kind of anti, um, uh, you know, someone to oppose what you're doing. That's totally fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. Let's get yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The beauty of art, right? We that's all some, can, yeah, that's all... some that's some good new insight. I like that. Yeah. The beauty of this too is that, you know, it's this ultra violent almost absurdist childish humor throughout this whole book. And then at the end, there's like this thing that crushes me. So issue 72, the last issue. So Billy's dead. Hugh is six months later. Huey's talking to, um, uh, who's still well, uh, the Vaught American, which is now called American consolidated and typical bullshit, corrupt government, nonsense corporation. You just get to rebrand yourself and keep going. You fuckers. Um, yeah. The realization is, and this is the line, and I'm just curious, um, that superheroes are, quote, a bad product. That's just a bad product we made. We've killed thousands of people. We caused 9-11. We've caused massive destruction. And it's just a bad product. We'll come up with something better at the end. And it kind of sets it up that they're going to start over. So again, this final thing, uh, this final lesson we're supposed to learn from this absurdist thing is that, you know, Hey, everybody, corporations do not have your best interest in heart. Mm. Right. And is that yeah. then Garth Ennis 
who left DC for, you know, to bring dynamite here, who's had kind of a bad experience with big corporations. You know, he and Alan Moore have a very similar path of grouchiness <laughs> and also bad luck with big corporations. Is this that too? Is this superheroes are a bad product, meaning DC and Marvel, you are making a bad, is that what he's saying? Is it also, is it meta beyond just the thing in the story? Is that the meta commentary? Yeah, yeah, but I think it's more than just the comics industry. I think that that's a specific, but I think that in general, it's more of uh, beware of corporate power. It just happens to work perfectly, him being able to reflect his own experience through yeah. superheroes. That's fair. What do you think, Dave? As yeah, we are three I, nerds who love superheroes. So it's not like we, it didn't work. We're still reading them. <laughs> so. Yeah, so, so I don't think it's aimed at DC or Marvel or, or actually anything in the comic book uh, industry. I think it is more just about huge corporations. And, you know, in order to in order for these corporations to grow, to acquire smaller companies, to keep getting bigger and bigger, you get people in there bubbling to the top by being completely cutthroat. And then, you know, if you have month to month, you have, let's say, I don't know what Apple's outgoings are, but let's say they spend a billion uh, a month or something like that, billion dollars. Well, they're going to have to make at least that just to break even and more. So within these big organizational structures, you get intelligent people doing not very intelligent things. And again, sometimes good people doing things which are not very good. You know, it's, it's not, it's not perfect. It's not all an eighties movie, you know? So I, I just think it, it's more about that. And, and the fact that, you know, it goes on, it's all about political spin as well. So there's no, there is no event that can happen that is completely unsalvageable. It's all just about how do you tell the story of how we got here? Look, you know, how many times have you heard politicians, doesn't matter how bad they fucked up. Look, we know, we appreciate, we made some mistakes. We know what we we did. We had a, a half hour meeting and we understood what we've done wrong for the last decade. Now we, <laughs> we're going to do, th we're, we're going to make a whole load of new mistakes. Oh no, scratch that out of the speech. Uh, we, we're going to completely change things and, and do things better now. You know, it's all just bollocks, isn't it? And I think, Honestly, this is why we die out as a species, because I think I'm at that point in the in the time of my life where I'm realizing that actually this is all the game is rigged. This is all bollocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, think, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think it really I know we're supposed to feel and we need to wrap up here. I know. But I know we're supposed to feel somewhat hopeful for Huey and Annie at the end of this. But I do think. It is, a, it is a dire warning at the end, Dave. I'm with you. I think um, it isn't, this isn't the series is over and let's ride off into the sunset. It's the series is over and shit sucks. And it's yeah. a little dour. Um, but I still think you could read it as, you know, um, like, I don't know, Brad, is it a call to action? Is that what Guinness, Guinness has given us? This isn't just like shit sucks, do nothing. Is he's like saying shit sucks, go do something. You know, I... Uh... I, I want to say it's shit sucks. Go do something, but it kind of feels like it's a very <laughs> cynical kind of. Nothing's going to change, no matter what. 
kind of thing. Even so, I, I, I guess in the in the sense of Huey and uh, Danny, it's like, well, you know, try to make the best of it. You know, you can still try to find love, still try to find meaning, but there's still going to be a lot of shit that sucks out there. And it's just, it's like it's 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 a totally different ending from preacher, you know, because it's funny that you said right into the sunset, because that's exactly how preacher how ends. Is. <laughs> they ride hey. into the sunset. And this is completely <laughs> a different, um, you know, like a, a definite bummer ending because, yeah. you know, it's just nothing, it, nothing does change. And that's, and you see that in real life, you know, um, as far as corporate power goes, it seems like no matter what these companies still pull the same shit still do the same thing they've been doing it you know forever and they're going to continue to keep doing it and it's very hard to see any progress when it comes right down to it but i think the the thing that that does change and it it is a fairly dour uh point but if more people read this and really get what it's saying then for me you realize okay wait a minute maybe we shouldn't just swallow whole what we're being told by, you know, religious groups, by governments, by huge corporations. Maybe we should think this is the, this is, these are the words that they're choosing to use to tell us a narrative. Is that a hundred percent correct? Should we start marching in the streets with our pitchforks? You know, uh, uh, maybe there's something else going on there. So I think for me, that, that is the message that, certainly the corporate side of things yet we're very happy for huey and, and annie uh glad that whole ross and rachel thing kind of worked itself out but, <laughs> yeah. you know i I, th- I think for the corporate uh <laughs> for the corporate message i i i actually liked the way it finished because it it's not an 80s movie you don't uh uh, you don't take out the the bad guy and then the world is rosy you know things continue on but you know as the masses we can be better educated in questioning you know what we're being told a lot of the time i agree i agree totally well and so on that happy note um here's what we'll do we will wrap up here um and that ends thus endeth the boys i still um for me our final thing before we say how to find us and i know dave has changed his twitter handle so this is going to be this i don't know if we're breaking news here um, did you mention it on the Superman four show? So I'm not sure. I don't, you yeah. You know what? I don't tend to promote my own personal. You handle. Don't. I, I generally promote Just all the show. Of the, okay. Uh, so, well, never know. mind. You can do whatever when we get to that part, but uh, sorry. So I didn't mean to break that news. Sorry, but um, no, no, we'll, we'll go with it. Cause it's not okay. a secret. I just don't. Not, yeah. talk about so, so uh, Brad, who, because this is, a, it does end this part ends in a different place when the other the series ends as we've just said kind of on a dour unhappy ending but um so does that mean we shouldn't recommend this book to anybody who who do you think now that we've completed the whole series and we've gone through this epic quest who is it still for the same people you recommended it for last time is this you know is there somebody else who you're like oh you know now that you know now that you've got to this part this first part is for you and you should stop at issue 40 but you should read all the way to the end uh, i would just say that <laughs> You know, we're, we're at a different part in history now. When we recorded the first part, the whole siege on the Capitol yeah. happened. So maybe some of those people, those idiots that stormed the Capitol, maybe some of them should read it and really take note to what it says about nationalism. Other than that, I would say the same people that I, I said. Yeah, last I, 
that's a, that's a brilliant thing you said, Brad. I think that's true because this is really clearly it, nationalism and jingoism are half a half a step away. So let's be careful. Yeah. Yep. Dave. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I feel like to get through to some of those people, you have to write it in crayon, and uh, you know there's <laughs> yeah. there's no there's too many words in this. <laughs> yeah, there's too much subtext, and you really have to hit people over the head with it with a hammer um you know uh, in the last few months you know i've seen um sort of privileged white old couples dancing to rage against the machines killing in the name of um <laughs> I, i've seen um uh trump supporters uh calling out homelander as this beacon of hope kind of thing and it's like uh, even Anthony Starr, the actor, he's like, "What are you doing?" Like he's yeah. like, "Guys, you've sort of missed the point there." <laughs> now, and if they miss a point that big, this book is kind of going to is going to be lost on them. But I I think this would be great for people who are a little bit right leaning. I think. Because especially the way it starts off, the first half of it, you know, it, it plays on a lot of tropes. It's a bit silly. It, it's subverting the whole superhero genre. And, and, and I love all of that. But then if you really stop to think about it, then it, it does have you questioning things uh, in a deeper way. And I I, I think it's, it's really great. But like I say, you, you've got to stop and think about it as well, not just look at the funny superheroes doing these debaucherous things. Um, I do have to say, just a couple of high points I'll, I'll point out. So I absolutely loved the Second World War stuff. I, I thought that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Some of the imagery, you know, when the uh, heroes are getting absolutely decimated by the machinery of war, uh, just brutal and, and sickening and, and wonderful at the same time. Love that episode, uh, episode issue. Um, Wolverine, when he takes out uh, Bob Dakota, that, you know, not Wolverine, Marvel yeah, yeah. Wolverine, but an actual Wolverine. Mm -hmm. And after all the decimation and everything, there's just a guy like a Secret Service guy or something. And he just says very casually, apparently he's the best at what he does or something like that. It's just right. phenomenal. I was crying at that bit. But, um, but yeah, so, so, so Tony, so since you, you talked about my, my personal Twitter handle, if you want to get me, you can get me at Seattle Dojos, which, I love. which is a, a callback to uh, No Treat, No Surrender. It was the Mafia's grand master plan to take over to America for some reason. <laughs> yep, Seattle Dojos. Nice. I love that. I saw that yesterday. I saw that today and I was like, okay, I'm going to talk to David. So I can't wait <laughs> to make him say that out loud. <laughs> Oh, and Brad, where can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, FlickyB1. Uh, that's F-I-L-I-C-K-Y-B and the number one. You can find me um, co-hosting the DC Comics News podcast and the Mad Love Harley Quinn podcast, part of the DC Comics News Network. And you can find me writing news and reviews for DC Comics News as well. Nice. Well, and this has been a delight, gents. And uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at Tricycle Boombox or go to my website and send a message there. I got one today. I haven't read it yet, but I saw somebody did that. So, hey, people are listening and they're like, hey, go awesome. to my web. I'm not on the Twitters. So that's cool. Um, so do that. And um, this has been a treat. 
And, um, you know, at maybe together again or at different times, you will both be back on again. I know without a doubt. Wait, can't wait. Um, without, I mean, this is just, I love, and I know like this was more of a walkthrough, but I felt like we had to walk through it mm. so people could really understand. It is so quite different than the first one, which was just like silly, mm -hmm. smart, but silly, where this one, um, we need to understand the story that's being told. So I appreciate you both giving me your time and I hope everybody enjoyed that. Oh, thank and you. Um, I will, um, I've got uh, other things happening. I'm starting a new series of solo shows. So start listening to those two, cutting in guests, cutting up solo, making it crazy here on the Comics in Motion Network. So um, thanks everybody. And I'll see you next time. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Brad. Cheers, guys. See you now. Thank you, guys.